The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, has said a changing climate is predicted to affect drinking water treatment and distribution systems in a negative way. Disturbances like wildfires, hurricanes, and floods are being exacerbated by global warming, and those who operate treatment facilities to ensure safe water comes out of our faucets are going to need to meet the challenge. Monica Emelko, a professor at Waterloo University in Ontario, Canada, is one of those engineers and scientists who recognize that uncertain conditions are going to require water providers to be resilient. Dr. Emelko spoke with H2O Radio in June 2019 following a presentation at the American Water Works Association conference in Denver. She likened water treatment in the future to Formula One racing. It will require drivers who can anticipate curves in the road ahead, and of course, a good pit crew. Nominally, I am a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Waterloo. My interest and my passion is drinking water. I think of myself as a public health engineer, but my basis of experience has historically been in water treatment design. And how long have you been at Waterloo? I have been at Waterloo now since 2001 on faculty. And uh, my interests have evolved from not only treatment, but also to source protection and climate change adaptation. One of the cool things about our group um, is that we were the first cited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for recognizing risks to drinking water through quality, uh, drinking water or through to water security through quality as opposed to quantity, so scarcity. I understand. So when you say your group, what's the group? So I am very fortunate to work with a group of collaborators, various disciplines, so truly sourced to tap. Uh, forest hydrologists, aquatic chemists, drinking water treatment engineers like myself, and even resource economists. And we've been looking at issues of climate change, associated disturbances and implications for water. Although there can be a variety of implications for water, I've often argued that you know, you can have, you can value water for recreation, for ecosystem goods and services. You can value water for spirituality, but without safe drinking water, a lot of those values tend to become very secondary. Because safe drinking water is primary always, right? Yep, absolutely. Water is life. We need water for development. And it's hard to imagine society without safe drinking water. One of the things I spoke about earlier today is four of the major causes of death have changed because of basic sanitation and safe provision of drinking water. So we need to keep water flowing. Since the 1900s, with the advent of chlorination, basic hygiene principles, we have eliminated a lot of deaths from infectious diseases. Four of the top causes of death in Canada and the United States literally have dropped out from the top 10 because of, because of basic chlorination and associated hygiene. So our industry owns that, and that's why I think of myself as a public health engineer. And when you say our industry, what industry are you really talking about? Talking about the water industry and more specifically the community of water providers, here we, we are at the American Water Works Association annual conference and exhibition. One of the neat things about being involved in this association is, is that our industry includes not only the utilities that provide water, but the uh, municipal, state, provincial, federal government agencies that regulate what we do, the consultants, the manufacturers, the suppliers around us. I think we work collectively to provide safe water for everybody. It's a huge industry. Absolutely. So today your talk was entitled, uh, More Important Than Ever, Drinking Water Treatability 
and resiliency assessment for climate change adaptation. So what, what did you talk about? Well, I'm realizing as you say it that that's quite a mouthful of a title, but the whole point there is that climate change is really putting us into a space that we haven't been historically in. There's this idea I talked about, which is stationarity. And, and what that means is that there's a range, an envelope, if, if you will, of water quality that we are accustomed to observing in our sources and where we then treat it. Sometimes it's more deteriorated, sometimes it's less, but it's within a range that we're comfortable working within. But climate change has completely put, you know, put that out the window. That's gone now. This concept of non-stationarity is that we are seeing fluctuations. It could be deterioration in source water quality. It could be more variable water quality. So up and down. It could be more frequent fluctuations in water quality. And the more change you have in a system, the harder it is to be responsive to the extent that you're achieving your optimal performance, so the safest water that you can produce. That's what challenges our system. It's not deterioration. We can, deter- we can tra- treat deteriorated water. We can make safe water on the space shuttle. The question is how much are we willing to pay for it? And stationarity. That sort of refers to sort of like the range of where things are safe? or It's not about safety, but it's a range of values we observe for any parameter of water quality. So it's just what you're accustomed to responding to. So for example, if you have suspended particles in the water, you need to remove them. What's the range of concentrations you typically see? When we think about planning for the future, for any given system, any given region, we have an expectation for what our source water quality might look like and how much that might fluctuate. But with with climate change, what's happening is, is we're seeing increased frequency and severity of disturbances on the landscape. So floods, fires, hurricanes, and they're leading to water quality that is much more variable, much more frequently variable, and it's just harder to pin down and achieve as best of treatment for it as we can because we have to get doses correct for various chemicals that we use, for example. So it's challenging. It's more challenging. And so one of the key principles now is resiliency. Is that accurate? Absolutely. The idea of resilience. When we talk about engineering design, we can think of two types of processes. One is fail-safe. The other is resilient. Uh, And in fact, we could, if we wanted to go further with that analogy, we could talk about resistant and resilient. But in engineering, we typically clump both of those under the concept of resilience. So fail-safe is something that it works, and it works within a certain range of inputs. But once something happens that it's not, the system's not accustomed to or not able to respond to, typically a fail-safe system will just shut down. And that is considered a really good approach when you can't have a lot of uh, human attention or operator attention to the system. We want it to be automated. In contrast, resilience typically requires some sort of operator attention. So if you can imagine, you have a technology and somebody's driving it and making it work to the best extent that that they can. Um, So it requires that additional care and feeding, but that also means that it has a greater ability to respond. So you can be humming along in a range that you're accustomed to, then there might be a perturbation such as a disturbance, say a wildfire or a flood. Your water quality that that is being treated, it might deteriorate a bit. And then resilience is about how quickly it comes back to where you want it to be, to your targets. Or alternatively, this concept of resistance is, is that, you know what, it can absorb that disturbance and still produce the same level of quality. So in our industry, we borrow these concepts from ecology. 
but in the and at the end of the day, we call it all resilience. But it's either about bouncing back or being able to absorb a challenge. And this morning, you also talked about how important it is for that operator to be trained well and to be able to understand what's happening. Absolutely. I often like to uh, think of water treatment as a Formula One race. You know, there is a common misconception that water treatment is all about technology. If you have the right technology, you're fine. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And the analogy is, is, you know, if you take a Formula One racing car, like a nice Ferrari, for example, you put me in to drive it. I'm not a trained operator. I'm not going to do very well in that race. And so a big part of success in that type of system is, yes, you need the technology or the equipment in the plant, but you also need the operator who can drive it. And that's a big part of resilience. Really resilient systems have really capable and resilient operators and to take that even further the analogy you have to know the track you're working within so that's the range of what you would expect in your source water how variable it is and you have to recognize that with changing climate you're going to be on a new track things you haven't experienced before so you have to practice and be able to respond and what helps you with that is your pit crew so your lab the analysts in your lab, all of the support equipment, the telemetry, the sensors that will help you better drive that vehicle. So it is very much a team effort and equipment or infrastructure is only part of it. So from your point of view, and maybe you don't know, are water providers responding to this challenge of being resilient? All you have to do is walk around this conference this year and you'll see that they're absolutely responding. And they're responding in a way that is appropriate for their regional issues. One of the big things we talk about is know your source. So you'd need to not go very far from where we're sitting. We're in Denver. And Denver Water has already been responding, looking at options to not only manage their infrastructure and their water treatment plants, but also on the landscape, managing their forests, which provide the majority of water for the major cities in the world, so 60% of the major cities in the world. And also, uh, somewhere in that vicinity, approximately two-thirds of Americans also get their water from forests. If we look after those forests, healthy forests are going to give us healthy watersheds. They're going to pre-treat our water through natural infiltration processes so that we don't have as challenging of water to treat subsequently. So that's just one example. There's plenty of uh, utilities here that are equally looking to optimize their in-plant gray infrastructure as well. And you talked talk this morning about water source protection and how um, the traditional method of water, protecting our water source just won't work anymore. Absolutely. And that's not to say that our traditional approaches are problematic. They have gotten us to where we are today, but I think they need to evolve. So traditionally, this concept of source water protection has meant don't contaminate. And what that basically means is, is if we have our source watersheds where our drinking water supplies originate, we try to limit industrial pollution, occasionally recreational uh, vehicle use or activities. And that has really gotten us uh, you know, to this point where we are today with respect to our water supplies. But the challenge with changing climate again is this concept of non-stationarity where we're seeing wildfires like we've never seen before. They're more severe, larger landmass areas are burning, similar with floods, more frequent, more severe. And while fences around watersheds are really good at preventing contamination from industrial pollution or anthropogenic activity, they're not so good with mother nature. And it's that that we have to tackle. The fact that we need to manage our watersheds not to prevent disturbances because we will not be able to prevent the disturbances. Um, and I should point out, those disturbances are natural. 
climate change doesn't cause them per se, it just exacerbates them. And our activities on the landscape can also exacerbate them. But what we're talking about when we're talking about new attitudes towards source water protection is the idea of managing the landscape. We manage farms. We have best management practices for agriculture. We have best management practices for how we treat our groundwater supplies, but it's amazing that the majority of our water can come from forests, and yet we don't have best management practices for managing waters specifically for the protection of our drinking water supplies. But when we're talking again about landscape management, the goal of that is to mitigate to mitigate the deterioration of water when a disturbance occurs, and water quality specifically. And so if we can mitigate some of those impacts by managing the landscape, then challenges in our plants will be lesser. And so a water plant manager who's getting their source from a forest has to know what's coming down the stream, coming down the river, in terms of, you know, is it, is it polluted? Is, is it got something in there that I need to be aware of? Remarkably, that is a complicated issue and they're not always aware. Why is that? It might be outside of their jurisdiction. It could be in another state or province. But certainly out of their sphere of control, they may not be aware of the activities ongoing on the landscape. And of course, it's difficult to encourage people to be willing to pay for source water monitoring. Our historical philosophies have been, and this is even how we teach people at the university, you treat what comes out of a pipe. And there's not much thought or energy given to what's happening upstream to that water. You just treat what's coming out of the pipe. And I think, again, this, this day and age, it's the first time that we're starting to say, you know what, it's not good enough. We're starting to see that people cannot afford safe drinking water on a full cost recovery basis, not in developing countries, but here in the United States. There was a subject I wanted to ask you about that you didn't really talk a lot about this morning, and that is um, after a wildfire, um, the, um, taking trees out that may have been burned and or protecting the watershed that has been burnt. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes. Uh, it's interesting because it comes down to what we typically refer to as a wicked problem. It's a trade-off issue. What do we prioritize? So taking trees out after a wildfire, it's typically called salvage logging because you're salvaging some of those trees. You might be doing it because you want to use that fiber, or you might be doing it because you're cognizant of species habitat. The problem is habitat that's good for one species isn't good for another. And so when you're going in there and disturbing the landscape further after salvage logging, we've seen that frequently you have more deteriorated water quality even beyond that which you might see after a fire. Now, not all fires gonna have an effect. Some fires are small, but in general, with these severe fires that I'm talking about, salvage logging can make water quality worse. But interestingly, if you think about the forest, depending on what kind of trees you have there, the forest might recover more quickly if you do have salvage logging. So you're trading off short-term impact for long-term recovery. So it's a challenge, and it's a challenge that I think that we as the water industry have to get involved in the discussion and be willing to hear from other areas of expertise like those in the forest management sector. So uh, of the subjects we talked about, is there, is, is there one or two or three of them where you think we're not responding fast enough? I think that the biggest challenge, and I wouldn't say fast enough, but I'd say we're not being vocal enough about relaying to the public and to the community that when we talk about what makes it easier or harder 
to provide safe drinking water. We're not necessarily talking about contaminants in the water that are of direct health consequence. Rather, they're things like suspended particles and natural organic matter, which is just dissolved carbon, that makes it harder to be responsive when water quality is changing. It makes it harder to efficiently dose chemicals and essentially drive our infrastructure. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we need to relay to the public and to, frankly, our decision makers. And I think we as a, as a organ, professional organization, the AWWA, that is something that we can effectively communicate. The other thing that I think is critical with respect to these disturbances for the general public is that they remember that we have treated water standards and guidelines. And we don't put out unsafe water. If you are getting water and it is coming out of your tap and it's meeting regulations within your state or region, then it should be safe water. You've been listening to Dr. Monica Emelko, who spoke with H2O Radio's Jamie Sudler at the American Waterworks Association Conference in Denver, Colorado, on June 11, 2019. Dr. Emelko is a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. She is also the director of the Water Science Technology and Policy Group and is cross-appointed in Biology, Geography, and Environmental Management, Systems Design Engineering, and the School of Planning. The American Waterworks Association provides support to H2O Radio.